0: Hey, and welcome to That's Myrony podcast. My name's Alicia, along with my co-host Todd, and we're going to explore what exactly is myrony? Well, myrony, or my irony, are those crazy coincidences that happen in life that you just can't explain. It's also another word for sign or synchronicity. We've all experienced these throughout our lives, but what if you started paying closer attention to your myronies? What if you started connecting the dots? Or as we like to say, follow the spiritual breadcrumbs. That could have an impact so big it changes your life forever. Not to mention the lives of others. Now, That's Myrony.
1: Welcome back everybody to That's Myrony podcast with your host, Alicia Myronic. And myself, Todd Courtney. Uh, Once again, uh, we have a special guest of Alicia's, uh, one I was not privy to know who it was going to be, but uh, I have just learned as of about 90 seconds ago who it is, and Alicia's told me so much about him that I'm excited, and I think uh, all of you listeners will be as well. I'm not going to go over all of his, but when I hear that he's one of the pioneers in the field of VoIP and one of the founders of uh, Vonage. And it struck a chord with me because I almost went to Vonage. It's so funny because most of us have been around and heard and, and Vonage was a big company. But one of the things that really caught my attention is being an astrophotographer. And I'm not really sure exactly what all that entails, but being a fan of space and all things space, uh, I do want to dive in a little bit of that. Uh, and, of course, the ask of the oracles. Um, That one intrigues me as well. So I guess I'm kind of all over the place from phones to astrophotography to oracles. Uh, But I'm going to turn it over to you, Alicia, and uh, allow you to introduce here, Jeff, the pulverizer, pulver.
0: (laughs) Well, yes, (laughs) great intro there, Todd. (laughs) Well, yes, thank you so much, Jeff. So we got Jeff Pulver on today. So thank you so much for, for being with us today.
2: I'm grateful to be here.
0: Oh, well, we're grateful to have you, and it's all thanks to Myronie as to how I met to met Jeff.
1: Myronie, what is that again? I don't. Right. <laughs> right. <Myronie.
0: laughs> Synchronicity in motion. Tell
1: tell us, tell tell me, and then that'll include us as to how you met.
0: Well, it's kind of funny because it's back to uh, Miss Erica O'Grady, who from episode eight with Erica and Dakota, when. Oh. They told their beautiful myronic love story. She and I reconnected, and um, when I was scrambling to find a story, actually for for the soulmate series. And
1: just to recap, real quick, that was when they found each other because of his ex wife. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes, on right. Tinder. Just, I, I want to make sure they're not blending, which they probably are, but at least I remembered that part.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so she, we, I had been doing some cool networking groups based in Canada. And then she's like, you need to come to my friend, Jeff Pulver's networking group. And I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. Now I will admit I'm not part of tech. So I didn't know who Jeff Pulver was. Um, But the next morning she messages me and she's like, "The, the group's going on right now. You should jump on. And rather than me being in the place of, oh, you know, I look awful. You know, I'm just waking up. I'll do another one. Nope synchronicity Motion decided to jump in. And that's how I got to meet, um, got to meet Jeff. And it was so funny because it was actually his cousin, Karen Pulver, who was speaking right as I was jumping on. And Karen does an incredible podcast called Grateful Goddesses. And she was speaking of synchronicity, literally right as I jumped on. I was like, oh, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> and then, had the opportunity to connect with Jeff after that. So Jeff, thank you again for being here and being able to share your myronies of how you've created. I mean, first you're the pioneer of voice over internet protocol, right? Isn't that it?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, there's a a lot to that. And you know, there's, um, I mean, what I helped create ultimately helped change the way the world communicates. And so, I actually did not engineer any of the underlying technologies. I may have repurposed it. I may have used other people's inventions to create the first phone network that was on the internet. And I may have had an idea for the future of communications to include a broadband phone network, which became Vonage. But there's a lot more to it. It's just, you know, those are just pieces of a much larger puzzle of how people communicate and how people connect and how to create a meaningful communication relationship through as technology evolves. But yes, I when when it's written that I helped pioneer the voice over IP industry, what it really is, is that um, in 1994 the technology was not really ready for prime time, but I started playing around. And in 95, uh, not for any personal gain but just out of a passion from a hobby perspective of wanting to communicate I cobbled together some stuff that I thought worked and uh, I accidentally created this phone network which went viral and the work that I did ultimately was a foreshadowing of the future and during that time I coined a few terms that became part of the vernacular and I showed uh, seven years ahead of Skype what one could do with the internet and communications and scared a lot of people because of the times were changing. And a lot of people started to polarize and, and some people went to their lobbyists. I'm talking about the telcos and other organizations which are about to have their dinner eaten and their lunch eaten and their breakfast eaten. And they were not ready yet to not be so greedy. And they started trying to use laws to defend the evolution of technology. And then I, along the way, created this trade show and conferences where all these businesses congregated I was very fortunate to actually create a meeting point where um, I mean, I did not have any background in producing events or shows. So I made everything up as they went along, but I was able to be the heart and the, 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 the nexus for a lot of innovation that took place. And so uh, from 97 to 2008, during that time frame, I ran an event twice a year in the United States, once a year in Europe, and then I expanded it. And, you know, we would have, I don't know, three, four, five, six, 7,000 people, uh, depending upon the year, depending upon the event. Uh, but I would see over 10,000 people collect cumulatively throughout the year uh, who were interested in the future of communications. And then over time, uh, not only did I start a few companies, I was very fortunate to invest in over 400 startups. But uh, I had a premonition in 2003, which I took action on And that resulted in a law, actually in an order issued by the Federal Communications Commission in February 2004. And it's the impact of the pulver order, combined with the release of the iPhone in 2007, combined with the vision of the CEO of AT&T from 1964 World's Fair, that really shifted into the way that we are communicating today, seamlessly taking for granted the widespread availability of video and voice, where well, we are connecting the world together as one. The, the pulver order specifically was a question. I had, a, the, I had this vision um, that I came from the future to protect the past, to make sure that the phone companies did not, um, uh, did not protect broadband from innovation. So in February 2003, I filed a petition with the help of some great lawyers asking for regulatory clarity that voice communication starts on the broadband internet for not to be regulated as telecom. And there's a really fun story that lasted about 13 months or 12 and a half months, but the end result of that was that a law got issued and I became a, su- I became a subject down in Washington and uh, the pulver order passed on February 12th, 2004. And that changed the way that companies like Verizon did business and does business today because for voice not to be known as telecom has a lot of regulatory implications. But that's why companies like Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, and Google are not regulated as telecom providers, but the applications that run on their services are, could be or are free. Why platforms like Zoom can be free, because there's no regulatory overhang for any of that. And um, that changed how things were. Now, if you happen to know something about lobbying or, or the uh, creation of orders or how slow things happen one would tell you it's impossible to come to the government in February of one year and expect a law passed and 12 months later, but because no one told me it was impossible, <laughs> I did it. Exactly I, right. <laughs> I, I have humbly found that by not knowing what I can't do anything and everything becomes possible. Wow. That, that it's the power of no that sometimes makes people stuck. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm an advocate for turning no's upside down to on. <laughs> and, I, and I teach people to drop the T. So instead of can't doing something, you figure out how you can do something. What's so dropping the T's and turning the, and turning the, um, you know, turning the nose to ons that shift everything. And so that's a piece of it, but the, um, I'll call the synchronicities. So it's really, really, it's the, 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 the journey. You know, I, I would, you, you could, I, I could argue in your, in your terms, that maybe i've had a slightly myronic uh life journey (laughs) i I need to give a backstory to understand the 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 end the end game um or at least part of the latter part but in the early days of me we'll go back to uh, uh sometime when i was eight or nine years old i can't exactly remember the exact day or the exact week but Let's just see the third grade stocked.
1: And, and hold on to that, Jeff, because what's really strange right now is I was just going to ask a question and go, what was the tweener Jeff like? What was that eight to 12-year-old like? That was literally going through my head before he said that. I don't even have to, have to ask the question.
2: Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll, let me just set the stage a little bit so then we could, I'd be That's happy so to funny. answer any of the questions. The, the, um, but, but so what led up to part of my journey which, was then, which then unfolded was I had a tough time in, in elementary school. I, had, I was an independent thinker. I had a way of seeing through people and I just did not tolerate um, how kids lie. And I couldn't tolerate fake friends. I couldn't tolerate the, the way I felt and the way I felt uncomfortable I could tolerate that. I tolerated because I, it was a, a warning signal, but I, I chose rather to be by myself than to hang out with people I just didn't like. And, and maybe they were wonderful people and I wasn't either ready for them, or maybe when these people were of a certain age and acted with a group mentality, that it just was a very uncomfortable to be around them. So I, I chose to be by myself in some ways to protect my soul. And um, my parents were quite aware of my situation and they did whatever they could to help me feel more comfortable. And for a long period of time, my dad had told me to reach out and to call one of his, one of my uncles to visit his office because he had something to show me. But I don't know how you were, you were at that age, but I didn't always so much um, follow through on those things now at that same age i was somebody who took things apart um i had a tape recorder i took it apart i didn't exactly put it back together the right way i started a fire from that i i i had yeah, been a there i we, we had model rock <laughs> we had model rockets and you know we would build them and and sometimes they go up in the air vertically and you know as a kid and even with the my friends and their parents sometimes we put them horizontally and we watch them explode <laughs> You know, back then we could blow things up in a good way, and it was actually yeah. a creative way to learn. You know, we didn't need a license from Homeland Security to have a chemistry set. We could so experiment, yeah. and, and you know, I, I had the, 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 like the great 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 grandfather of the drone, was a radio controlled plane, and I had those, and I played around, and I, I got to experiment and start to understand the scope of what we can do. And even in those days, I was teaching myself things to do. I wasn't learning them in school. I was, and there was no internet to look for, but I found the information I needed and I attached my passions to it, my openness to find passion to it. And it was there. It's like, I became a photographer when I was four years old because my dad handed me a a Minolta and the four-year-old me took lots of pictures of chins and bellies and sides of buildings (laughs) And then my photography grew, but I grew up in a, photo- in a, in a, in a, in a black and white um, darkroom family where I grew up with the smell, knowing the smells of chemicals, knowing the smells of the darkroom. And I, and I, you know, photography for me is part of a life journey, very well documented, but also different um, emphasis at different times of life. And with many a sunrise and many a sunset captured uh, just for the sheer eloquence of it and many times not captured so that I could be in the moment and feel the energy of where I was and not be distracted with anything in my hands. But when I was going to school and I was not having a connection with other people, it was very infrequent, my father told me and saw that I was lonely and he saw that I wasn't really with too many others. So he told me to reach out. And one day I get home from school, it's probably 3.30 in the afternoon. And my uncle Fred is in, at my, you know, my house, my parents' house, where he was there. And I go with him in his car for about an hour to his office and he shows me around. My uncle was a pioneer in cable television. Back in the sixties, he took a company public in the seventies. He had a, a manufacturing plant in Farmingdale, New York. And I remember he drove me out to his office and I, and I saw the people who worked there in, in, his, in a very large square foot um, facility. And everyone of course was very nice to my uncle, but I assumed they were nice to him and nice to me because they worked for him. So why wouldn't they be nice to him? And of course they'd be nice to me. That was my assumption. And then I get into his office and this was probably one of those major change moments of my entire life. because I got to his office, it was a very small office looking out onto the factory. Maybe it was 10 feet by 12 feet. And in his room, he had um, a desk and he had this big box and he had a ch- couple of chairs on one side of the desk and he's on the other side of the desk and i didn't realize until a little bit later that on his side of the desk he had a microphone sort of like yours and um and uh then he and i'm just sitting there and then he he, he wants to show me something so he 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 uh flips the switch and all of a sudden this box starts to glow and i start to hear noise ironically for him uh, he's hearing voices I'm hearing, I'm hearing noise. He's hearing voices and he's taking the radio and he's taking, and it turns out to be a radio. It turned out to be an amateur radio with vacuum tubes, which is why they were glowing. There were, these are these radio tubes and he's turning the, the dial and, he, and I'm just hearing noises and he's telling me who he's hearing. It's like, sure, whatever. And, <laughs> and finally he clears, finds this clear spot <clears throat> and, and, and he starts speaking this cryptic language. He says, CQ, CQ, this is k 2 qqm i am calling CQ. And he repeats that for a minute. And I didn't understand that CQ was the uh, Morse code abbreviation for seek you, the letter C, the letter Q, da, 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 which has a nice rhythm, is an outright cry looking, I'm seeking you, I'm out, I'm doing an outreach saying, hey, someone around, I want to talk. So he says this CQ to the world, he lets go of the microphone, and for the next hour I am mesmerized because it didn't matter where in the world the person was from, they all spoke perfect English, and all my uncle would say is, my name is Fred. I'm in Farmingdale, New York. And he gave a signal report as far as how weak or how strong the person was. It didn't matter whether they're from the USSR, whether they're coming in from Argentina, whether they're coming in from California. Everybody sounded terrific. And I'm on the other side of the chair. And like, I didn't realize how popular my uncle was. And I didn't realize, <laughs> like, this is so cool. And so as we're after the demonstration, I just looked at my uncle straight in the face. and I said, hey. Should I take your radio home with me? Because you see, I realized my uncle had the cure for loneliness. And if I had that radio in my bedroom, I could turn it on before school, turn it on after school, and I could be with people all over the world. And what happened at school, I wouldn't have to worry anymore about friends because I could have them on the radio, which that would be beautiful because they would not know what I look like. They would not know anything about me. There would just be a voice out there to connect to. But he said no, (laughs) and I I said, "Why not? I'm I'm your favorite nephew, right? I should have the radio. Let me just borrow it so I can play with it." (laughs) And he explained to me that it's no, and it's no also because in order to use this, you need a license to communicate. You need a license. You need to study um, for a ham radio license, and and then you can you know use a radio so i was like you know eight and a half and what am i talking about well i literally had to teach myself college level physics Whoa. In those days i had to teach myself morse code and then i had to study the rules from the federal communications commission yes the fcc the same fcc that later in my life would issue an order of my name back then i had to study their laws about what it's like to be an amateur radio operator in the united states and I learned a lot about failure growing up because I failed my ham radio test quite a number of times until I passed. (laughs) And by the time I was 12 and a half, I finally had a license to communicate. And I arguably probably haven't shut up since then. And (laughs) and, and the, the thing is, is that when you have this license to communicate, you use it. And so I actually started living in this world where I could make friends all over the world. I did not ever, I met some of them, but I didn't, didn't matter who I was, where I was from. At least that's what I thought. But literally before school and after school, I would be on the radio and I probably spent about 20 to 40 hours a week on the radio growing up. I was quite active. I was more active in that than probably anything else I did. And as a result, I, I, I had a world knowledge. I also learned a lot about social media at a time when, um, being social with media wasn't so cool, but I was the media. And so you know, if you're 12 and a half, 13 years old and you're talking to people who are mostly in their 50s and their 60s, most of the people who I'm talking to were men um, complaining about their jobs, talking about their wives or their girlfriends, and then t- dealing with life events. And so the reality is 13 year old Jeff is not so interesting. I didn't have a job and I didn't have a girlfriend. <laughs> So how am I possibly going to connect with these people? So I learned four words that I still remember this day, which I help people focus on if they want to be active and successful in social media. And that's to listen, to connect, to share and engage. If you do those four things, everything becomes more interesting. And this is how I ended up meeting so many interesting people on the radio, because on amateur radio, we don't care what you do for a living. Yes, you can be an ambassador yes you could be a senator you could be um the daughter or the son of a famous singer i'll never know i just know you by your first name and your location and hopefully i remember your voice and nothing else mattered and of course if you had a passion and i had a passion we could talk for hours about whatever that was in the most minuscule details and it was fun and 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 growing up believe it or not back when there was the ussr there was this always this competitiveness between East versus West. And for some period of time, the idea of talking on the radio was a sport, actually a sport called radio sport, where teams of people on the, on the, in the USSR would compete with teams of people in the other parts of the world on certain weekends of the year. And it was fun, intense, but fun, very geeky. I understand, but it was actually a recognized activity. And... When I was growing up, one of the things I liked to do besides use this radio was to experiment. And I discovered really early on that that as a a public service, particularly in times of emergencies, someone who had loved ones overseas would, would at times would like to speak to those people in the States. So if I had a talking to a ham radio operator, for example, in Puerto Rico, who wanted to talk to somebody in New York City, I had what was called a phone patch. And if anyone ever saw episodes of MASH with Radar O'Reilly, who is not a hero of mine, but was someone who I could relate to, who had to, under heavy conditions, sometimes patch people in from Korea over back to the States, I would have my phone patch and I would, I would flip the switch. And it's a very public channel that there's no privacy, but you would hear people on one end, talk to the people on the other end. And as long as it was about, not about business, it was about anything else, we could speak so what people were doing was bypassing at the time very expensive long distance rates and making local phone calls and it and it worked and so whether i was you know doing it for a friend of mine who had family in new york who was living in tel aviv who i met or somebody who was living in, um, in michigan who wants to talk to family in new york it didn't matter my parents never really metered the phone calls i made on behalf of the ham families i was servicing <laughs> but it was um but it worked out and what i ended up very passionate about was the connectivity which kind of kicked in, in in high gear in 95 but that was me starting to like discover things and then the 3 years that it took um which i thought was forever to get my ham license i became uh, an expert on what was playing on the radio i became an expert i used to listen to am the am radio dial so much that i knew all the stations I used to listen to the music when there was music being played, the news stations, and I started to understand geographies. And you know, growing up lonely, you know, there are times when I was so lonely that I would actually would adapt the music of someone else to make it my music so I could have something to talk to them about so that would have something in common. You know, it didn't take me until I was probably 17 or 18 until I actually figured out what my own music was. But when you're trying to find connections with people, you would go to great extremes at times to find those things that are in common. And so for me, I started, you know, playing around with the technology, learning Morse code. Um, my first experiences with artificial intelligence happened right around that same time because this tape recorder that I had, which I did take apart and almost did burn my house down, but luckily we didn't. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a next door neighbor or across the street neighbor growing up where every time you talked to the person, it was a very predictable call that you knew exactly what they were about to say prior to them saying it, but you just wanted to prove the point. So I had my friend, Robert, who may watch this so have, or listen to the podcast. I got to be careful here. But Robert Sherman, <laughs> if you're out there, I apologize in advance because I knew this guy. And every time we picked up, we, we, I actually would pick up the phone to call across the street, which is kind of silly, I understand. But it was always predictable what was going to happen. So what I did is I took my tape recorder, And I pre-recorded my responses to what I expected him to say. And for six months, I dialed his number, play stop, play stop, play stop, play stop, play stop, hang up. For six months. (laughs) Never. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) And 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 if you think about programming, you think about you know neural networks, you think about all this, yeah, it's a tape quarter with a neighbor named Robert, and you just know what's gonna happen and you just go through it. And it was pretty funny to me because it was a foreshadowing for how certain things would evolve. But that was so that was my first experience with both programming and with AI from a perspective of having some sort of neural network in my brain, <laughs> anticipating what was gonna happen. And so this evolves for a while. Lots of other things happen. Um, I, I, I did have no social life, but I did have a very strong passion for music. And ironically, so my, maybe my first uh, irony—no, actually, it was my second. My first, <laughs> the first irony for me was um, before I got my ham radio license. When I was in um, sixth grade, I was actually a comic book dealer. I was actually dealing in comic books. It was one of my businesses. Oh my, goodness. my first business. And the first time I was ever in the news, actually, which was on local news in New York City, uh, uh, on our our Channel Five here, I was uh, I was uh, interviewed on TV, live TV, uh, being uh, the youngest comic book dealer in this comic book convention, and uh, that provided that was the spot. The first time I literally was ever in the spotlight, and um, and then things started to evolve from there, not devolve from there, but. Um, but I had I started building a really nice record collection or vinyl collection that what people would refer to these days. And uh, even though I had no social life going up really through most of high school, girls who I wouldn't go out who I was too shy to go out on dates with, some of them actually hired me to DJ their birthday parties. So I ended up making money <laughs> not by dating, but by actually playing their sweet 16s and DJing their different things, and it was actually it wasn't such a bad business that I was able to actually find, use my love for music in a positive way. And even though I had no social life, I had a chance to at least be exposed to other people's social life because I, was, I wasn't even invited to their party. I was their DJ. So I was sitting there watching everyone else have fun. But I, I learned a lot about what songs to play or not play, depending upon whether you want people to uh, stop dancing or, or, or continue <laughs> on the dance floor. But it was an awareness of, uh, we'll just call it as from a social, if I was a sociologist, it was a very interesting uh, observation of people and behavior. And um, through, um, so that's what, and then so by the time I got to high school, um, so, so I was a ham operator by the time I was 12 and a half and I was DJing when I was 16. And I, I did have some other things ar- around that. But I, uh, and, and, you know, for me, I was teaching myself things I was passionate about. I wasn't relying on school to do that. And um, by the time, I think when I was in 11th grade, I actually had started a computer consulting company when I was in 10th grade. So I was doing consulting work in 11th grade, Started a software company, I started a software company when I was going into 12th grade. And um, because I became an ex, my father, I was very fortunate that my father used our home, his home as a backup location for his office. And we had a mini computer in our house. And I um, i started, I broke into the computer to learn how to program a mini computer. And I didn't say break in, I just figured out how to log in. And, <laughs> and I spent m- many hours teaching myself how to code. And then because I, because of these ham radio contests, as they were known, were very manual intensive, because it's one thing to talk to 100 people an hour, but it's another thing to actually write them down and log them and dupe them. So in the 70s, I actually created one of the very first ham radio contest logging programs, which facilitated a lot of the drudgery associated with uh, doing ham radio contests, which for me was the difference between competing and not competing. And then when I was in the contest, I was optimizing, understanding who to talk to, who I needed to because the world was divided into 40 different zones. In addition, we had different states and different countries. And so I had a guide to figure out who to talk to, who I should avoid talking to. And that was running like an optimization matrix while I was doing this contest. And so I had this programming experience. And then one day I'm at, my, my, at, the, at the terminal of this computer and these maintenance people used to come every 30 days to my parents' house to, um, to do preventive maintenance on the computer um, from data general, and so i 'm sitting there and and after of two or three or four months, I started to re- start, start having a rapport with these uh, service technicians who were coming there who realized I knew I was more than just someone sitting in a chair, and they would tell me about um, uh, some of the clients that they had whose uh, ben- main primary vendors were going out of business, and they asked me, did I know how to code in data general business basically which I did. So I, I, part of the reason I had a consulting business is because my mom was kind enough to drive me to consulting clients when I was 16. And I got the leads from the SEs who came to my parents' house. And then I became such an expert in this language called data general business basic that I realized it was missing the ability to do floating point arithmetic, which in a language is kind of intense. You kind of need that. So I wrote an add-on to that language. And in the summer of, of my going into my senior year, I started a software company the first one I did and I would sell, I think I sold busy float for $500 a copy. So I was making each day what my friends were making for the summer.
0: Wow. wow. I, I'm like, are you as dumbfounded as I uh, am right now? I, like, my I, mouth, I,
2: my <laughs> mouth is <laughs> dropping <laughs> deeper and deeper and deeper. So, so when you're, you know, you're in high school doing these things, you know, I was figuring things out all along, right? I learned about failure. I learned about success. I didn't always know why I was successful, but I was fearless in what I would do, right? I was fearless. I wasn't afraid to, 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 to make mistakes. I, I, you know, I didn't really talk to too many people while I was doing this, but it was fun in the sense that I, I, I got to learn a lot of things and uh, try out things. And I, had, I was living in an environment where I was able to balance that. I was able to do what I liked um, and deal with school and, and deal with other things. And then when it came to going to college, um, I actually didn't want to go, because I, I kind of like knew more about computers at that point than than I thought others did. I was waiting. Right? Yeah, I seriously. I, I, I you know, and you know that was the era, you know. But uh, that was you know my I did have friends in high school who were building computers the same time that that uh, Steve Jobs built his computer. My friends were building their their computer with the same altar chips, although, you know, the Apple happened and revolutionized everything, but on the east coast we were playing around we had deck pdp 11s and stuff and i was in my own world i grant you i was in my own world but uh we were having fun in our own kind of way and then like one summer i guess the summer then all this happened like between you know 10th 11th 12th grade um so i was doing my ham radio stuff i was doing the coding i was doing the djing and uh, I, w- I would need all sorts of interesting characters along the way too because like uh Right when I got my ham radio license, I met one person in Israel, one, who I became friendly with. And then one summer, a friend of mine told me his family was going to Israel for a summer vacation. Do I know anyone there? So I said, sure, I know this guy named Danny. He lives in Tel- He lives in Ramat Aviv. And he says, oh, okay, do you mind if you, if you ask him if I can visit him? Because he want, my friend was looking for something to do. So I said, sure. So, I, so sh- as life would have it, <laughs> Um, one day uh, at the beginning of the summer, I get a postcard from Israel from my friend, Sandy, who said um, that something is up with Danny that he seems very patriotic because these, these photographs of Golda Meir are right on his walls, and Golda was I guess the prime minister at the time, I think, and he had to go through uh, uh, security in order to get into his friend, my friend's apartment. I said, oh, okay. Then at the end of the summer, I just got a postcard that said, check out how Danny no- spells his name. And I said, Okay, so by this point, I'm talking to my friend Danny once a week, and we were I was I was doing phone patches for him, and I was and when he came to New York, ultimately I would be social with him, but he spelled his name M E I R right, but he always said his name was Danny Mayer, but um, I found out that he actually was one of the grandsons of Gold of my Year who was living with him. Oh my
0: goodness. Okay, now that's my ring. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes.
2: And, 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 and so, you know, I, I, that was my first actual like connection with Israel in the terms of that I, I'm still friends with Danny. And um, I've actually, over the years of going there, I've gotten to know the grandsons of three prime ministers. Uh, and uh, But it also comes from, if you will, a hobby or a passion not because I want to do business with these people, but because we have something else in common that, that leads the way to things. And so, um, but it, it was an interesting time, lonely at times because I was shy and lonely because I didn't always know how to express myself in a way that was understood. But I, I, I figured things out. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was, so when I was in high school, I, when I finished college, when, before I went to college, I basically ended up having three companies that I was doing um, without realizing it or appreciating it. And it was, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, it was DJing. It was, uh, being a software publisher and doing consulting. And, uh, it was actually ironic to me that it took an interview. Someone interviewed me about seven years ago for startup grind or whenever it was. And it was during that interview that I realized I had these three startups before I, before I entered college. Cause I had no <laughs> clue, but you know, those were all, um, Revenue driven businesses, I didn't have to raise money for any of those companies. We didn't necessarily we I myself did not necessarily (laughs) make a lot of money from any of those. But I learned a lot. And sometimes it's what you learn from the process that's more valuable than the money you may make. But it's the education you get by doing so and then I um, I did go to college. Uh, I did graduate with a uh, uh, an accounting degree, which, yeah, I, I'm a very gainfully unemployed accountant because <laughs> what I realized early in my uh, college career was, because uh, I went to this job fair after I already chose to have, because I didn't want to go to college, right? So it was a compromise. So the college I went to on Long Island was number six in the country for recruiting into the accounting field. So I figured, okay, if I have an accounting degree, I'm covered just in case nothing else ever works out. I could always work in accounting. And um, I I started talking to people who were working in accounting and it really scared me was the only difference I found between a one-year accountant, a five-year accountant, and 10-year accountant was the one-year accountant loved their job because they did something different every day for a year. The five-year accountant did every did this took that one year experience and duplicated it for five years and the 10 year count more or less had done the same thing for 10 years.
1: And that was yeah.
2: for me. I was so wondering I, where I you were going to go
1: with that one. Oh, hold, hold on, Jeff. So, I, I, I have to, I have to interrupt you if I may. Sure. I, I Because there is so much and I don't want to wait until we get to the end to try to recap of how much I think is going to continue to go on, which is mind blowing to me. I'm just an average guy. I told you that all along. I'm just an average guy. So, but I do have a question. A lot of times I wait till the end to ask this, but I'm going to ask it now. And and because when I look at the 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 eight and the nine to ten year old lonely child, at first I'm sad, and I, and then part of me goes, well, kind of, it's kind of cool because then you can kind of go really deep inward, and then all of a sudden he's, you know, his uncle takes him to the office. He's learning how to use a ham radio, which then ignites something within you. And, and, and then you just, you know, then you're taking apart stuff and then you're recoding stuff. I mean, you're playing in your dad's, uh, you know, mini computer. Had you not been lonely, say, had you been playing out in the, in the sandlot, so to speak, um, most of this may not have happened,
2: would you say? Is it fair I to say? I would say that I probably would not be here right now.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, which leads me to my, my next question. And, and I bring this up for a point, not just for us. But for listeners, because there's a lot of lonely people out there. There's a lot of people that that feel lost regardless of their age. And it's helpful to know because, which is, leads me to this next question. Would you change anything in your past uh, knowing that have, it would alter not. where you are right now? What absolutely
2: not. I have zero zero regrets. Yeah. Zero regrets. You know, the... Part of that loneliness is, is allowing other people on the outside of your headspace to alter how you feel. Mm-hmm. That that you know, consciousness is a chemical in your brain. We perceive the world as we perceive it, but we don't always understand what we see and what we feel. And learning to speak your truth, learning to understand who you are, what your dharma is, understanding what your purpose is has a huge impact on yourself and everyone else who you touch in your life. And giving yourself the freedom to explore life and to discover who you are, and maybe along the way figure out why you may be here, at least at certain moments in time, changes everything. And being able to break that wall so that you're, you can speak a truth and not be afraid of what you're going to say And learning to speak that truth so that others can hear you, whether they're ready to receive your words or not, changes everything. Changes how you are and it changes how others around you hear you and feel you, but they may not be ready to receive you. Right. You know, one of the challenges you have is that we, everyone goes through different phases. Everyone's growing and changing each and every moment. You may be entering your summer. I may be entering my winter. She may be entering her spring all at the same time. So different moments of our lives, we're ready to take on different things. So one of the reasons why we have challenges and why people feel lonely and inadequate or uncomfortable isn't always necessarily who they are, but it's who everyone else is too. And then our ability to accept ourselves, not for success, not for failure, but just to know we are who we are and that's all right. And to allow ourselves to be strong, and to grow, and to have the freedom to flow wherever the flow takes us, without any judgment, allows us to manifest a future which is unbounded. Because the reality is that anything remains possible until you stop it. That if you have a positive attitude, if you allow yourself to allow the what-if to be and you learn to let go of fear, uncertainty and doubt, you learn to let go of any attachments and you're open to whatever will happen is okay, you can change the world. You will discover that the power of one is so much more powerful than the power of none. And even if you have to do things that require teams, it takes one person to see something, others to execute on it. That collectively we can do so many things but you have to allow yourself to breathe. You have to allow yourself to become who you are, no matter what it takes. And sure, you know, we all can go into our own cocoons and come out with different butterflies. And there are times when we want to basically relocate our GPS for ourselves and reboot ourselves, because I strongly believe that we all need to, even if we don't want to, but we have to give ourselves the flexibility of, of not doing anything other than finding ways so we could thrive it's not survive but it's thrive so no i I would not change anything that i've done or anything that happened to me for good or for bad because if i change anything there's a very high likelihood that i wouldn't be here at this very moment
0: well the fact that you i mean i always say from our higher selves your higher self at age eight was able to Mm-hmm. recognize that and I mean really truly just be like accept it for what it is because you know it, it's funny I was extremely shy when I was younger um, I had so many insecurities I you know I was definitely a shell of a person I, I couldn't talk in front of people um, you know I, I remember when I first uh, you know became uh, general manager of this very fine dining restaurant I had to go up to talk to uh, guests at a table and I would be shaking because I was that shy. So it's, you know, to now be doing this is pretty freaking funny, but, <laughs> but you know, it's just like for you at eight years old to have, Oh my God. Have a
1: built-in BS
2: meter he had.
0: Well, that
1: was a gift right there.
0: Well, yeah, but, but, but it, also. It, it,
2: it's an intolerance. It, it, it's the intolerance for the BS, right? It's because yeah. p- you, 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 you yeah. I say this too, that young kids speak the truth until they don't. Uh-huh. <laughs> that people learn, right, they, they, there's an age where we actually are very truthful, when we really are transparent, where we don't know better, other th- and so we haven't learned to lie, so we speak our truth. Yeah. And then something happens, I don't know what that something is, but something happens, <laughs> and people start to try to conform. And, you know, when you have the ability to see the transparency of the moment... There's an uncomfortableness. Look, the reality is, I probably was sent to f- from psych exams, and maybe I purposely failed them because I thought they were wasting my time. So I just I messed with their brains. So I, I may have done that. Uh, I, may have done a, I, I may have done certain things intentionally because it's like, hello, I get it, but you don't get it, so it's like fine. Um, and 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 I suffer the consequences at times, but you know, I have a very acute awareness of things and of time and of energy. And I always did. Um, Maybe now I better understand what I experienced, but I, you know, in the, in the multiple timelines of me, you know, there is this, there is a part of it, which is discovery and passion. And, you know, when I got out of college, you know, there's several journeys that happened in parallel. Um, One of them was ultimately that I would never work for anyone other than myself, which I only learned over time. Um, because I, when I finally did leave the university and I only, only was there for four years, I ended up taking on a, as a, an accounting firm as a client. And, uh, I became, uh, I was announced, outs- I, I figured out how much I was making on, on as a consultant. I wanted not to give that up because it was much higher than the entry level salaries of what they were hiring at. So I came in at a higher level and it was interesting. And I, I actually did a few different things at the time. Um, I did, because ultimately I became an expert in fixed income mathematics and I ended up building some software products. I started, so I was in the accounting firm. I kind of left, uh, and got them as I, I basically ended up with 23 or 24 partners in a software company after being associated with this accounting firm for a short period of time. And then I was in the software business. And At what age period, was that? At what age was that? I was 22, 23. He's already got a resume.
0: I know, seriously.
2: But I but I what happened was is that I um I set the all-time record for billing hours during a Thanksgiving holiday. I was of you I, did. <laughs> I think I over the Thanksgiving holiday generated 100 100 and I didn't work Saturdays back then. So, I think I worked 118 hours, 120 I, some ridiculous amount of time I worked dur- to help close a deal which cuz this, this was a real estate accounting firm. And, I, and I, while I was doing this, I realized um, how much opportunity there was in taking spreadsheets and, and growing them to have additional functionality and different abilities. And so um, I, I uh, basically started learning how to write machine. Pro- I started teaching myself uh, pseudo machine programming. I was very active because uh, I, I started working in accounting and, and, and computers and Right in the age of the spreadsheets, the age that Lotus 123 was dominating, Physical was, was phasing out, Lotus 123 was phasing in. And I was the person who would speak on both sides of the digital divide between the accountants and the computing, computing team, trying to help people start to understand how to automate their workflow, how to automate the work they were doing both internally in the company and externally with clients. But separately, I would go, I went to Cambridge Mass, I I went to Lotus Development Corp, I went to their developers conferences, and solely as a uh, bystander, uh, I was watching in very creative minds, people that became icons in the computer industry, and who have now retired even, I saw partly in their prime, sharing a vision of the future. And... um, what, and, and the one thing about accounting firms, which may have changed, but I don't think so, is that there's something called tax season, where basically <laughs> you become a slave, a domestic slave to a corporation where you have to work six out six days a week. It doesn't matter under what circumstances. And that's the way it is. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and
2: yeah. Um, so while I was working during tax season, and of course, I wasn't, thank God for any clients they had, I wasn't doing accounting work because that would have been disastrous. Um, I, I had this idea to, to enhance the functionality of Lotus one two three. I was When I was bar mitzvahed, my father gave me, age at age 13, an HP-12C financial calculator. And he gave me a book called The Appraisal of Real Estate. So I had to read this green book to understand. This is 13. I had to read up oh about God. The Appraisal of Real Estate. And I had this HP-12C financial calculator to understand time value of money. And so I had that, you know, in, even in high school, I had all these things, and so I'm going to work in this accounting firm, which turned out to be a real estate accounting firm, and I became very um, I was building spreadsheets for their clients, dealing with banking and finance and mortgages, and very complex math at that. And I realized that the way that the Lotus 123 did their time value of money uh, calculations was not right. <laughs> it was actually <laughs> broken. Oh, wow. Wow. So, so I, with my father's help, I created a product called FinCalc which took the functionality of the HB12C financial calculator and, and brought it into Lotus one, two, three. And I started a company called spreadsheet solutions. And, um, I did this all while I was, um, I did this in the summer of night of 87, I guess, or whenever it was. And I, I, I did all this, uh, while I worked at this, while having the cl- accounting firm as my main client and, uh, and it was intense because i had this full-time gig so i really couldn't market myself for so much so i learned about marketing and inbound marketing and outbound marketing because uh, once i created the product um, i hired an a inbound marketing company to take leads for me during the day while i had a day job and i had a fulfillment company which in the beginning was just me and my sisters who helped out and um, i was doing this and then there there was a magazine back in those days called pc week and ironically, ironically, it was during. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> in a, in a January, I think January of '88, there was a cover story. There was a story about, about, about FinCalc right in the magazine that I had hoped to get coverage in. And I was so tired. I was working, um, say, it was 70, 80 hours plus for myself. I was physically exhausted. So I had to take a Friday off because I was so tired from everything. I was like, you know, burning double ends of the same uh, candle here and so here I am home from work and all of a sudden I get a phone call from the managing partner of the firm that I was working at why? Because one of the other partners read up about this product FinCalc and they wanted to buy it for everyone on the staff and when they called the company who I hired for bulk rate licensing for, for this product they said oh there's a guy you need to talk to his name is Jeff Pulver but he's not here right now can we take a message I said oh no <laughs> so they called me into the office That's and funny. that was on a friday so i spoke to my father and i spoke to our family attorney so on monday of that week when it came back i resigned i said that i thanked them for having a mutual beneficial relationship with me but i saw my future building applications and growing uh in the world of spreadsheets let me let me let me ask you another question
1: because now you've intrigued my uh, you piqued my interest again so you're you're in your early 20s here and, and you're becoming this computer software guy and you're becoming this accounting guy as well. Are both of these mutual passions Are are they a means to an end? Is there, I just want, I'm trying to get into your psyche here. Are you going for money? Or are you going for challenge? Are you going because you found this Lotus problem and you, you saw something that you could fix and everything I, I, is
2: fun? It, it was the fun plus the solving. One thing about, software development it's art right yeah. there's artistic expression in anything and everything we do from literally creating art that's visible to invisible art and and the, the art of programming the zen of programming if you will can take on many forms and and it, for me it's the problem solving so sort of like the first time i ever experienced time travel was a time it was like eight in the morning i sit behind my desk trying to write some code and next thing i realize when i'm aware of time it's 10 o'clock at night
0: yeah i sure. did not
2: move from my desk the entire time wow time moved. yeah but i but i was in those moments and, and they were so fulfilling that like it was you were so thriving. you
0: were so in the now that yeah. you didn't even realize yeah i didn't even realize was what was happening yeah.
2: so that was the endorphins that powered me through those moments through those days through those Very weeks cool. through those years almost
0: Wow. and so
2: what happened was ultimately the counting wasn't so much for me but yeah, the the, the um, So when I came in on that Monday and I resigned, and I shared, I, and I told the managing partner that um, you know I appreciated the mutual, the mutual beneficial experience that we had together, but I'm dedicating my time to doing this, doing this as a company, and I dare I say I actually said I had projections. and and this looks to be a very interesting opportunity. The moment he heard I had projections, we ended up with three weeks of negotiations, and that's how I ended up with 23 or 24 partners in Spreadsheet Solutions. (laughs) So they ended up financing, at least for the first part of Spreadsheet Solutions existence. And all I was doing in the beginning was the the core functionality that the financial calculator did. And then a year or two into my existence, uh, of, of selling uh, the FinCalc, I, I, t- I started going to trade shows, even to accounting shows, trying to show what you could do inside of spreadsheets that I was repurposing spreadsheets to do things it wasn't designed to do. And then one day to my face, somebody uh, tells me about uh, that I was basically a liar or not being true. And I said, what are you talking about? But so you see, I use my, I want to know, we, I like to know about the bond yield calculations that you have inside, your, inside of ThinkCalc. I said, what are you talking about? Well, it says, right here, you emulate the HP-12C calculator. I said, yeah. Well, I use my calculator to figure out yields on bonds. I said, really? How do you do that? So- P.S., <laughs> the guy was right. I didn't know anything about bond yield calculations. I didn't take calculus in, school, in, high, in college or high school. So I ended up having to teach myself McLaurin Power Series Expansions, which was part of calculus. Yeah. And I ended up codifying, um, uh, ended up codifying this, these, these math, large mathematical formulas on bond yield calculations. And a year later, I actually launched a product called At Fixed Income, which I took the power of literally, it was a $2,000 calculator. They were selling these calculators for $2,000. But back then, you could have a Bloomberg terminal, I guess, on your desk for $2,000 a month. And I came out with a software product for $99 that did that, except no one would buy it. Why? Because it was $99. Too cheap. And, I, and I actually ended up changing the price. I moved it from $99 to $495. I ended up making my most sales when I charged $995 for it. Oh my God. That
1: is so. All right. This brings up an old story. Can I tell an old story? When I was at, uh, when I was in college, when I was in San Diego, uh, my uh, business, one of our business professors basically had, I'll never forget the story because on the weekends he would go to the swap meet and he would go down to Tijuana and he would get leather coats and he would come to San Diego and he would sell them at the swap meets. And he would, exactly what you're talking about, because he, he got them dirt cheap. He got them like, this This is back in the 80s. So he got them for like 20 bucks, 30 bucks or whatever. And he was trying to, he was just trying to double his money. So he would sell them for like $49. No nobody, would buy, nobody would buy them. As soon as, just as you said, as soon as he raised his price to like $149, now they seemed like a bargain for a high-end leather jacket. Mm-hmm. and he And, he, and, he, and, he, and he, he sold them all. He smoked it. Exactly, exactly verbatim. Your story, it and it's so, so funny.
0: amazing. Yeah. You wanted to actually give it for value, but nobody would accept the value. Nobody would it. accept it, right? So, so, you got to just mark make
1: it's yeah. just a paradigm, it's just a belief that people have that you got to spend money. That it's, it takes a lot of money to get something at quality,
2: yeah. and, and and so where I ended up taking that product is I ended up then taking I learned about fixed income securities. Then I learned about option trading. Then I learned about all sorts of other derivative products. I ended up codifying a lot of Wall Street math in my software. Oh my and um, of course and, that, and then I, that not only did I do that, I was also connecting to the market data providers, the people from, who provided live pricing for markets. I created what were called feed handlers, so that back then it was Tellerate Reuters, Knight Ritter, Dow Jones. So many people had market data feeds. And if you ever walked into a trading room at Salmon Brothers or Smith Barney or First Boston, you would see all these people with many, like 12 different monitors on their desk mm-hmm. and they were buying and selling God knows how much money at any moment in time. And uh, I was providing tools for those people to execute their profession. Wow. And um, I had no idea that was where I was going to go with all this. Um, sure. But I, I started building that business and I ended up... Um, accidentally, moronically, I guess you call it. It was, uh, we don't have time to get into this, but I ended up doing a deal with Dow Jones Telerate where my financial product that I created ended up in every major bank around the world.
0: Oh I ended my up, God. I ended up
2: helping them launch. Cause I, I designed, <laughs> I created, I invented something called a real-time spreadsheet. Although I don't have any patents on it, but I actually did it before anyone else. Wow. I saw an opportunity to take real-time market data information, put it into Lotus 123 and to get it out. And so when you're, when, you're in the, when you're living in the now and you're seeing live prices change, everything. So the world now has all these things. But back when I was doing it in 1988, uh, 89, no one really had it. And I figured out how to make that stuff happen. And so I, li- I did a licensing deal with a very large company. Um, and that sort of put me on the map in terms of where things were going. So and, Jeff, how um, old
0: were you at this time?
2: I'm still in my 20s. And, uh, of course, I don't is. it was my twenties. Of know. course, it it there's no worried. way he's
1: thirty yet. We haven't even got the rockets in
2: space yet. Or I, I, satellites. I will. I will I, 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 I'll, I'll speed this up. I'll just tell you that I ended up having my first major exit or minor exit. I ended up selling that business, spreadsheet solutions, to a Wall Street uh, to a Wall Street brokerage firm uh, called Cantor Fitzgerald Securities. I ended yeah. up um, with a three year contract. Um, working at the one world trade center. Wow. And, uh, this is where my bat, my, my, my backstory saved my future story because I, I had an exit. Um, by that point I was married. I had young children. Um, and, uh, uh well, I, I don't really want to say too much. I have to be careful here, but it was an uncomfortable situation, maybe at home a little bit, but I had pressure and, uh, I was, you know, I, I, what I realized now is that I actually, when I, when I, when I sold my business to the company um, I ended up with a really nice three year contract and arguably maybe overpaid by them and being overpaid by the company kept me in a position, which I didn't necessarily want to be in, but I felt stuck, sure. but I had so much pressure um, and you could feel, I could feel it. It's like the first 18 months I was there. It was so much fun. I, I traveled the world. I got to solve problems. And then the management changed. And the reason I had sold my business was because my friend was a chief engineer. My, my friend, a friend of mine who I was competing with ended up becoming the CIO at this company. And he offered me an opportunity to work with him. But then the management changed in between me and him. And the, literally the guy that was doing my software documentation for my team ended up um, becoming my boss. And that was a very, very, very uncomfortable situation. Mm. Um, which would ultimately lead to me being fired. And I had a bunch of my ironies on how I avoided all that, but it became painfully obvious I was being fired because in, in 1996, in February, we'd start out going on Friday manager meetings for management, l- manager lunches. Maybe there were 12 of them. <laughs> then two weeks later, there are 10, then they're eight, then there's are seven, then there's are six. So definitely they're coming for us. We're not paranoid. We're being let go. And there was a lot of major things happening, but, uh, when I first got to Canner in 94, I had the responsibility for um, the internet. I, I ended up with a responsibility to, to figure out the internet for the company. Wow. And um, in 95, and, and I actually, uh, you know, the World Wide Web was just starting to happen. And I actually showed a lot of people on Wall Street how to travel the world without leaving their seat by taking them to different destination websites. And then in February, 1995, something magical happened. Absolutely magical was the um, the the iPhone was released, so you we, we people think that the iPhone came from Apple in two thousand and seven. The first iPhone actually came from a company called Vocaltech based in um, Herzliya in israel hmm. And uh, they released this software in february twelfth of two uh, february twelfth thousand nine hundred and ninety five and what happened is, uh, and, and maybe I didn't mention to you, but when, I was a ham, when you're a ham radio operator, everyone, mostly everyone you talk to are strangers, but uh-huh. there's a culture where we accept the strangers. I, hi, you say, oh, hi, my name, is Sna- my name is Jeff, oh, you're Fred, oh, I'm from New York, you're from there, and we find something to talk to. On internet phone, um, it was the first product that actually worked on the dial-up internet that allowed people to talk on the internet. Uh-huh. And uh, we, the, the people who, who used internet phone, we all called it iPhone. Uh, mm. we like to create abbreviations. And uh, a lot of the people said, this is ridiculous. Who in the world wants to talk to strangers on the internet? And, <laughs> and, and so, so it tur- turns out that 20% of the people who were um, online using the first iteration mm-hmm. of, of iPhone were ham operators or former ham operators. Mm-hmm. And so for my social identity, I wrote my ham radio call sign. And And then I would have conversations with people and it was a little bit awkward because we were pretending to be on the radio while talking on internet phone. But all of a sudden I met someone in South Africa. I met somebody in in the UK. I met someone in in California, someone in Texas, and there were regulars. So I started a a mailing list called the iPhone mailing list so that when we were not talking on iPhone, we could actually start um, communicating and then for some reason, people started asking questions on the iPhone mailing list. And even though I had no direct uh, association with vocal tech, I started replying. And within a few days, I was, uh, I was deemed by the media to be like, you know, a telecom analyst uh, with an expertise in, uh, in internet telephony. I became a self-proclaimed uh, prophet of telephony simply because I was running the mailing list and answering people's obvious questions. It's like, how do you turn something on flip the switch? And so it worked. And, and, and so over a, a short period of time, um, I had like thousands of lurkers. By September of 1995, there were about 3,000 people who were on the mailing list, many of them who worked at phone companies. Now, I didn't know that because <laughs> you know, I had no relationship with, tele, with phone companies other than being a customer, right? And, and, and I was working innocently enough on Wall Street, but I, I was doing my thing. And, um, and here I was. I had a day job, which was not so fun, but I had a night job. And then in September 1995, with the hype of the internet and all the other things going on, I'm saying, you know, what would be really cool would be to do phone patches over the internet and let's use iPhone. Hmm. That became Free World Dial-Up. I launched it in October 1995. That became the first ever phone network that ran over the internet.
1: And and, and that came from
2: when you were doing patching as a child. Exactly. And so 20 years later.
1: Myronistic moment.
2: Yeah.
0: Yes. The
2: the big well, there are a couple here. Uh, actually <laughs> quite a few, it, actually. It's, it's, it's a Myrony <laughs> triple play. Right. <laughs> so, so 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 one Myrony is gonna be that um, maybe it's a quad play. We'll see. So my one irony here is I launched free world dial up and it and it went viral. And so I was a, I figured out how to hack so like uh, hack the, the the hack together the components needed. Uh, using you know available uh, um, electronics so that anyone who wanted to be part of the network could be and the key here it was had to be free we were not charging a penny a minute we were there was no toll charges whatsoever it turns out there are a lot of regulations about people who charge money for services there were no regulations for people for things that were free Ah. so i i didn't even know that luckily that happened uh uh, very lucky you didn't know that when
1: you read the fcc uh guidelines at at age 12 i I didn't see that there there, no (laughs) but uh but
2: as i said ignorance is bliss and being lucky is okay and we never apologize for bliss or for being ignorant or being uh, being lucky i should say (laughs) and 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 so i launched free will dial up it got more media attention going into the into the going into the that winter than anything i have done in my life Wow. All over the world, this became the news headlines. The the, the Sunday Times of London, the right around Thanksgiving in the U.S., had a front story about Bill Gates and the Road Ahead. And the back page was about the, 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 the future of, uh, about free world dial-up and the threat to the future of British telecom. It was the funniest media I ever read in my life because what we were doing was not scalable, was hardly regular it had no quality of service, all these re- reasons why it shouldn't work, but so many people were so scared of it. And so it was amazing. And I had a, a team that was a person I never met in Tokyo named Brandon Lucas, a gentleman who I never met in Jakarta, Indonesia named Isaac Jenny. And the three of us were, were, I called myself the product manager. And we were basically providing the software and providing guidance on how to interconnect and create what was free world dial-up and uh it was so much fun people love to uh to, to take on this to take on everyone but then in march of 1996 and again i have a day job i'm working at canada for Federal Security, securities so I was boring right so no one who wrote in the media wrote anything about my day job they just wrote about me being this whatever on the internet and i was like the bad guy uh or at least the the uh whatever person I'm like really and so um So you're looked at, at at this point, like some dark web uh, hacker, is that? Well, there was no real dark web back then, but sure, maybe. Uh, And and the reality was, I was just having fun. And it turns out, if when you do businesses that have no business model, that have fun as an intention, crazy stuff happens. And so (laughs) in March of 1996, 300 phone companies got together and filed a petition at the Federal Communications Commission, asking for the sale and use of internet telephony software to be banned in America, and the makers to be regulated as phone companies. Wow. And what was crazy is if you go onto the archives of the iPhone mailing list, you'd start saying, what? And I thought this was really funny. And people were like, from all over the world, were asking me, Jeff Pulver, what are you going to do about this petition? It was known back then as the Acta petition because it was a trade association that took, that took aim at basically tr- shutting us down, but also shutting down anyone and everyone associated with n- this new wave of technology. And so... Um, it took me a day or two or three, but I decided in 1995, I coined the term VON to stand for voice on the net or video on the net, depending upon my mood. And so I decided, I, I, I pulled the people on my mailing list. It took 10 days ultimately, but with the support of 110 companies, I created a trade association known as the, the, um, yeah, the, the, uh, the VON coalition. It's VON.org. It still exists today. I'm chairman emeritus of that. And we were able to stop the act of petition in in its tracks and it was never acted upon. Now you may say, Jeff, how is it possible that you have, uh, did you have any experience in Washington? No, did you have any standing? Well, I have a, I'm a ham radio operator. Have you done anything at all to to run trade associations? No. So how do you do this? Well, if you don't know what you, ignorance is not only bliss, it empowers you to do stuff that you don't know is possible. So I ended up creating this trade association. It still exists today. Um, and, and it actually stopped that and, and proactively for the last 20 plus years, almost 25 years, um, has actually acted proactively in, in pu- public policy dealing with telecommunications. And I got, you know, called on by the ITU. I had to go to a governor's meeting in, uh, in Geneva. And, you know, what it turns out is that my, my, my life in this field of internet communications was a combination of, uh, uh, of uh, Forrest Gump, Uh, and a little bit of the guy from being there. In fact, one of my dear friends in Israel calls me the forest gump of communications because things just happen. It's like, okay, let's, it's it's okay. Of course it was meant to be that way, of course. And and so you had this active petition that happened in in March of 96. And then I got invited to talk at my, the first ever internet telephony conference in the world. It was called um, Dialing the Net. It was held in London in April of 96 and you know working for a multinational corporation does have its benefits so i was the the head of i.t in my division in new york so i was able to get myself put to london for two weeks that was easy and so and i was able to go to this conference and that was easy too what was really annoying though was that um when i got to the conference everyone had badges with their names on it i wanted to know everyone's email addresses because it turned out by the end of the event, about 75% of the people in that room were people I knew from email. Oh. These all the people I'd been connecting with all the, for, since the year before, all about internet, telephony, and iPhone, and what was going on. And so I was really connected to this room, even though I'd never met them, any of them face to face. I just found it very annoying. Why is their email address on their badge? Because that's how uh, we know each other. Oh, you're Jeff at Pulver.com. Oh, okay. I know you. And you're the one guy that would know. Well, and, but that what was, and then I decided at that moment, okay, you know what? I'm going to do a conference in New York City about the future of voice and video on the net. And so I picked, ironically, I picked the dates of September 10th and 11th, 1996. That's my birthday. Um, well, my birthday is September 12th. <laughs> I right know, this know? is the 12th and I the 14th. So, we spoke, so, so September 9th and 10th, <laughs> uh, September, yeah, I'm sorry, 10th and 11th, ninety six. And ultimately, um, so in July of 96, I got fired. Mm-hmm. Um, as you will find out, it saved my life. I was going to say, it's probably been a
1: good thing. I can only uh, imagine. I ended up
2: in September 96, hosting this event, 224 futurists from around the world showed up. People who believed in the future who did not understand what was happening in front of them, but would understand what was happening tomorrow could be much more interesting. Some of those people would end up working for or starting multi-billion dollar companies who came to that first event. These are people who collectively changed the world. That was September 10th and 11th, 1996. The business partner that I had, um, and we call the event uh, the talking net, and I actually had the people who did See You, See Me, which became, it was the first internet videos out of Cornell, the guys from Netscape, but we had everyone. And um, the, my only way of promoting this was the mailing list that I was moderating. I just put it out there. Hey, we're having this event. People showed up. Very curious people showed up. And then I decided, because um, I had to, I changed the name of the event uh, to Vaughn, uh, Voice on the Net or Video on the Net. I changed, then the first Vaughn took place in April of 97. And one uh, one of the, one of the entre- young entrepreneurs who came to the event was a guy who grew up in Texas, in Dallas, who had this dream that people grow, who, who would grow as they were growing up, as they're moving away out of their hometown, who wanna to listen to their high school, high school sports. And he had a company which was called Audionet. And uh, moronically, or maybe not so moronically, three and a half years after, he, after I meet him, he changed the name of the company to broadcast.com and he sold it to Yahoo for reportedly $4.6 billion. And that's how I know Mark Cuban oh my god um and that was just one of the people but mark's a super super good guy and he's done amazing things to the world but i met him before he was famous wow uh when he when he he came to, to and i met a lot of other interesting people but that was 97 things start to evolve and what i didn't appreciate really was that people were coming to me to understand the future where things were happening and i randomly would pick dates out in my calendar, and I almost took it for granted that people from 30, 40, 50 plus countries would show up on the East Coast and the West Coast. They showed up in, and then they came to Europe. They, they met me with me in Oslo or Helsinki and in Stockholm. And we started to do things. I started one company to invent the products I thought that should have existed already. And I, I did a whole bunch of things <laughs> like that. And, and then I, then I because, because my conferences went viral, I, I started learning how to take having fun seriously. So if I heard an artist on the radio, I'd book them um, to play the party. So I'd always have a party the second night of the conference. And I found that engineers who literally almost would come to fist fights, promoting their protocol, promoting their engineering during the day, love to party together at night. And so I'd have an open bar, live bands. I mean, from the early days, I had all sorts of interesting bands. And, uh, and, and for some reason, which we'll talk to maybe in the future, the song Must thank Sally from the movie The Commitment. That's our- <laughs> gone. So even though I don't sing, in the writer of every contract, it, it always said, Jeff, Jeff will sing Mustang Sally with the band on stage. And so I'm dealing with you know Third Eye Blind, Smash Mouth, uh, oh. Counting Crows, Liz Fair, Huey Lewis and the News, the Google Dolls. Um, and I met them all. I met actually many more of those. And uh, some of those people were really nice, some of them not so nice. That's why I started a record label, because I wanted to meet kids before they were not nice, only to realize that at any age, you could be not nice. And sometimes people and I was called stepping stone records until I ran into a trademark issue. Then I became um, uh, rev up records, which is pulver backwards without the L oh, how funny. and uh, rev it was, up. you know, so I had, and I started in 99, I started an internet rock radio station with my friend Ian Bell, which was called pulver radio. And uh, I started all those things in parallel. I started a TV studio in about 2003, 2004. And it was a lot, a lot of fun, but you know, in uh, in the three and a half years, um, I mean, one one of the things that happened to me was in April of '98, when all this stuff was starting to percolate. Um, actually, it was April. It was April of April of '97. Uh, in April of '97, when things were starting to percolate for me, um, and then April '98, my father my father um, ends up driving his car into a dump truck, and it <laughs> turned out that he lost his peripheral vision. Oh. when we were in the family, we went to the hospital, we went in the waiting room. I still remember he was, we were told good news and bad news. The good news is that his ribs would heal. The bad news is that he had a uh, cancer. Oh. And he, he had, he ended up with both lung cancer and brain cancer. Oh, and wow. my dad, my dad told me to continue on building my company and to make my life happen. Oh. So I missed out on many things because I continued. I listened to him. And I and I traveled the world. I was doing all these things, and I wasn't home for him until the very, very, very end. Uh, he passed away in uh, in April of um, uh, of eighty nine. The following year, almost exactly to the to the exact diagnosis. Wow.
0: Um.
2: But but he told me like I had I had the first offer to sell my business, um. I think in April of ninety of 90, like the like a month or, like before he died like a month before he was um gonna pass I had the first offer to sell my company and he was trying to tell me to sell but I kind of felt like I would get more if I waited so I didn't sell um but it was actually the first time I ever actually uh thought about selling my business mm-hmm. and 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 that was in 98 and then things started to accelerate because I had I, I had the ideas for startups that started to happen and I was doing I, I was able to do was I was able to build a solar system it wasn't about me with one planet, <laughs> I actually did have, I needed multiple planets because I needed to create orbits and the orbits of one company helped balance other companies. So I was doing pro, I became proactive in regulatory policy even though I knew nothing about regulatory policy before I started, I started <laughs> investing in startups. <laughs> I started sharing ideas in different realms and people were listening. And then I started getting it right. And, um, but I, all these, so it wasn't one company doing things it was a whole ecosystem of things that happened. And then, well, um, okay, hold, hold on, Jeff. Can I uh, interrupt a minute?
1: Can I go back to your dad real quick?
2: Yeah, sure. I was going to get back to him also, but go ahead. <laughs> what, uh,
1: what, what would you have done differently during the process of your dad? And how long was that process that he was he was ill before passing?
2: It was one year. It was about a year. Oh, it was a year.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, what would you have done differently in that year?
0: Do you think?
2: I, I don't know. I mean, I, I really because I really stand by my words that I, I have no regrets in how I got yeah. here. And I, yeah. I, I, I hear. He my,
0: also gave the blessing. Yeah. I well,
1: yeah, I asked that. I don't ask it really for us. I ask it for the listeners because it's, it's, I think a lot of people I uh, I find myself sometimes in, in that situation at times. And I, and I'm sure there's a lot of people in a situation like that. And, and it, it is good that your dad gave the blessing and it's, it's hard. There are hard decisions that you have. Oh, to make. It was, it was
2: really hard. I mean, it was a very hard decision. And, you know, I, I, I sense my dad, I mean, I, ironically, there are days, like even earlier today, in my, my, my mom's house where I've been camping out for all these months and mm-hmm. actually a couple of years now, I smell my dad's Salem's. We smell Aww. my sister and we both, sm- we both smell the smoke. We actually literally do smell it. It smells like, and uh, we actually, we could smell my father was, as if he was smoking right around us. Yeah. And, it, and it, It's a very distinct smell. And uh, we both, we independently both smell it. That's amazing. Which is, yeah, a little crazy, but we do. Yeah. Um, but that's, other...
0: but that's how it is. Like yeah. they, they can literally show oh, no, up. And...
2: My dad's not so far away right now. I yeah. No. Right. Right. He, it is. So, so that's all happening. Right. And so I have the first time to sell the business. I didn't. Cause at that time things were just starting to take off anyway. And then you know, it, it took a year and a half, but within a year and a half, uh, we, we were the center point of where things were going. And what I didn't realize how smart it was at the time is I invited regulators from all different countries to come to the, to come to the conference. Because in Washington, I was fighting lobbyists. Because what I re- only learned as a life lesson is that when telecom companies are disrupted, they go to the lobbyists to try to invoke laws that did not exist uh, that existed, if you will, that predate the technology by hun- even hundreds of years at times. So, so I started learning about how, how lobbyists work. So I invited regulators to hear the truth, to understand the nascent industry of where we were at, so that there was no um, amplification of untruth, and that they had a chance to directly meet the entrepreneurs, some of which would change the world, and how the technology was being used. And it was really amazing because the, the federal communications commission with Bob Pepper's help, we had a town a town hall meetings at my conference where you want to ask the regulators there, they are, they're not mean and nasty That's or
1: scary. Really cool. So we had
2: open dialogue between entrepreneurs, investors, and, and, and people from actually all over the world. We had, uh, uh we had regulators uh, from Europe. We had regulators from America, from Canada, uh, from some Caribbean nations, at least these are the ones I remember. Um, I, I heard a story how Mark Zuckerberg came to my conference in 2004 and all sorts of other stuff. Some of which I cannot verify because I did not see him, even though um, his grandfather allegedly was coming to my conference, looking to raise $500,000 for something called the Facebook. That if, if that's true, I imagine whoever didn't take that $500,000 investment probably was sitting on $20 billion right now, but who knows? <laughs> um, any, anyway, for, for my journey, um, I end up um, going through this and and life was getting very complicated in different realms, both uh, personal and in business. And I'm starting to see uh, all these people going public and exits and I don't know what to do because, um, you know, what do I do? I I actually, I got a phone call, another um, ironic moment in December of 2000, I'm on a family vacation in Florida and I almost never, never answer a phone where a caller ID is not known. But I pick up the phone, and it was the chief operating officer of one of my compa- of a of a very large trade show company, the guys that did Internet World back then, and and over the years, during from '96 through 2000, I had partnered with a lot of companies. I did content at other conferences, and I, I was you know building my brand, but also b- maintaining relationships. And this person asked me you know directly, "What is my exit strategy?" I said. I had to say, what is an exit strategy? What do you mean? He said, well, this is like when you sell your company and you have an exit and you go on to doing something else. Now in December, 2000, I have to tell you, I was having the time of my life. Uh, The conference, I was probably, we probably did, I don't know, I don't remember, but probably 14 to $15 million in revenue that year. Now, Now, considering that I knew nothing about running conferences in 97, And I learned the life lesson that if you're the CEO of your life and you're running your company, you can create a culture that you like. Mm
0: -hmm. So my
2: culture was around fun. (laughs) I was the boss who on Fridays invoked between Memorial day weekend and Labor day weekend, uh, karaoke Fridays, where for two hours, every Friday, we did pizza or whatever else we wanted. And we did, we sang together. We made music together. Wow. In the wow. And when I had a record label, I would have artists come in and entertain us on Fridays. And it was just a fun place. So selling was never in my mind in terms of what do I do? But um, I, so I said, I did not know what the exit strategy was. And I thanked him for the phone call. And then over new years, I realized maybe this is a message from above that it's time to sell. Mm, maybe this wow. is the time to sell. And I was worried about how the industry would react to me selling because um, you know, I didn't want them to think I was, you know, selling out. But uh, at the same time, I was thinking about that future, and maybe this was a sign. This was a sign of something to do. So I hired a broker, and uh, in uh, June or June of night of two thousand and one. And by the way, two thousand and one was leading up to the be the best year we ever ever had. And in June of 2000, I went out to Los Angeles to finalize the negotiations. I almost broke them because I really didn't like what they were doing, but I, I had I was comfortable enough. Anyway, um, the deal. I think I may have mentioned it to you, but what day did the deal close? What do you think?
1: I'm I'm gonna guess it's I'm gonna guess it's the dot com implosion. Actually <laughs>
2: the deal, the deal closed on September 10th, 2001. Oh, the same day you had your first okay, conference.
0: Okay, was, I was about to say, I should have <laughs> went with it, September 10th, yep.
2: Right, September what? 10th, and then 9-11 happened.
0: Wow.
2: Now, when 9-11 happened, um, you know, my conference was in the destination events business.
0: Uh-huh.
2: So my conference that I sold for one day for $57 million would have been literally worthless the next day, because if you're <sighs> not getting on airplanes, you're not um, necessarily... Uh, Going wow. anywhere? So if you're in the destination events business, FS and Hebrew
1: 911 9, Wow! That right now, now, what's more impactful
2: was that. And of course, ultimately that became a forty million dollar deal because I had no upside. It I was there was no upside due to nine eleven. So I had an sure. earnout, but but it was sure. no earnout. And um, but anyway, on September eleventh. I had the kind of job I used to get to the office sometimes I used to take the 637 train in from where I live into Manhattan and so um, even though three years had passed by the time nine eleven happened, um, happened the company I worked for lost close to 700 people and about 400 people on the roster were people I did work with
0: oh wow uh,
2: gone because uh, yeah. in IT you support teams you support all sorts of people individuals and the groups and so I lost about 400 people that I actually, whose names I recognize and remember to this Hmm. very day. I still um, have to remember a gentleman by the name of uh, Bill Gardner who worked at the accounting firm where I was. And when they were looking for a D-based developer on Wall Street, I got him a job at Cantor. And even though I left, I I couldn't convince him to leave with me. I was able to take a few people from Cantor to work with me when I started working on the minutes exchange, because I started working on something which became Vonage before 9 11. Wow. Um, but I, and those people were ended up on the Vonage team, but um, one person didn't make it. And, um, but I realized, you know, getting fired saved my life. Wow. And I, and, and I, and I am, you know, always, I always applaud people the chance to have that anvil lifted off their chests to have a chance to breathe. And to be fired, because so often we get ourselves in uncomfortable situations, because it's such a force field where we can't push it. Uh There's such heaviness that, you know, you can feel the inertia, you can be aware of the inertia, but sometimes you can't move it yourself. Someone else has to externally push it for you to create an opening for you to come through, to be rebirthed into your future so that the rest can happen. So in my case, the inertia of having a high paying job, even though I knew the end was near. I didn't have the ability to leave. But when I left, I ended up not going back to Wall Street, but pursuing my passion. I decided to, even though I had no experience running conferences, actually I did one in 93 about the art of the spreadsheet, but practically speaking, I had no experience doing conferences. Being fired opened up pathways that were otherwise maybe blocked or things I just never would do. I never worried about failure. I never worried about what if it doesn't. It always would be. That's awesome. I'm,
1: I, I, I'm going to ask a question on that because I'm guess your dad was successful, it sounded like, right? And so was your uncle? Mm-hmm. So yes, I'm gonna guess they were the type of people that didn't tell you you can't do something. Were they always positive in that? Yes, you can try it, try it, try it. I mean, because there's a lot of
2: people. Oh, you the can't. Only, the only time they, my father would get down on me is if I got depressed. I mean, one of the things I missed about my dad is that if I fall down a hole, there's really no one to pick me up out of it. Yeah,
0: so that's a huge,
2: <laughs> that's a huge, huge benefit because for those who who grow up in a household
1: that that teach you I can't. Uh, you're already pre-programmed. You have a gift, or I should say you were given a gift, it sounds like. Well, yeah. we
2: were given multiple gifts. I mean, but to be able to live a life of passion. Yeah, absolutely. Given, given a chance to explore your future, which is both unwritten and unbounded, where you decide how things will happen. And if you don't like it, go in for a redo. <laughs> go in and reset. I mean, well, that's yeah. kind of... And
1: it's, it's, it's kind of, I was getting to that, because when you look at... Uh, when I listen to your story, what's ama- what amazes me is the blessing you were given. I, uh, part, of me, part of my mind was thinking, oh, the title for this show should be Loneliness Can Drive Success. There you, you go. You, you can't say it will because you, people have free will and therefore you don't know what you're going to do with your loneliness and what you did with it. And by the way, when you said you were going to follow your passion uh, uh, about a minute ago, I thought you were going to say, I'm going to buy a Radio Shack. But uh, as <laughs> <laughs> Being the ham radio guy. But no, I mean, I, I truly, it was a gift being given to you. And as I listen to that, because as you said your own words, I'll paraphrase a little bit, but the fact that you never even under, understood no or understood you can't, mm-hmm. you just move forward. I mean, these are things I've read about, but it's hard.
0: Oh yeah, it's well, it's that a, a whole thing. When one door closes, another door opens and to really embrace that and be a part of that. And well, you know, and and most like- of us
1: and most of us have our own, you know, we have our own programming. So we've got these paradigms, uh, other people's uh, behaviors that they've beliefs that they put on us. So we create our own roadblocks. And what's amazing about Jeff is, there's I have not, not one, heard not one about roadblock. one roadblock. No. He just keep, he just keeps stepping forward. I mean, if normally in a process, two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, two steps back. Yeah. He just keeps moving forward. It's I it's know. crazy in an amazing way. I'm not, and, and don't get me wrong. I'm sure there were pitfalls and and roadblocks and speed bumps oh, along the way. there's a lot of
2: learning, which I am not so much editing as much as I am just trying to make points with. I mean the, um, the, no, I get the road, that the roadblocks. The the, the, the so, so, but I, it was the amateur. So it was being a ham radio operator on one level not only gave me direction to help change the way the world communicates because it was a thing that I did so far, but it also gave me that direction even when I was um, at Canner when I was bored out of my mind. I launched Free World Dial Up, and and so when people tell you that they only want to invest in companies that have business models, you could say bullshit. Because it turns out that non-scalable businesses are the scariest things out there because it's nothing that a large corporation could rationalize investing in. But I'm a non-scalable business. i ironically, before I was fired, I was being courted by Safeguard Scientific's venture fund. I was looking to raise $500,000. I recently found my pitch. I said to invest in me because I was a leading expert in internet telephony and I was going to create a conference business. You know, That $500,000 investment would have yielded a huge return for somebody when I had my exit. But because I had no investors, I maybe kept it all myself. So it was okay. Uh, (laughs) And and because I'm not necessarily fitting into other people's molds because the, the more you are independent, the more you get to be yourself. And you realize that you have a license not only to communicate, a license to be you and to rediscover who you are understand your boundaries, understand your strengths, understand your weaknesses and breathe and be in the flow of life so that you can experience the fun in real time. So you don't go back about with regrets of should've, could've, would've, or what will be. What will be is you. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the most touching moments happened to me a year, when my, the year my father died. On my way to this journey on the path, it turned out that the first conference I did outside of America was in um, Europe. And uh, during the 30 days of my mourning of my father, it was it's traditional to get together a minion, you know, at least uh, 10 people to say a prayer of Kaddish to honor my dad. And I had in my room in Oslo, strangers and friends showed up so I could do Kaddish. Aww. I didn't ask anybody.
0: That's they beautiful. Up. Wow. That's wonderful.
2: So they beautiful. just showed up. And so I was able to, you know, show respects each night I was there with friends and with strangers. And when we left, we were just friends. And, I heard, and that was just, so, so when you start thinking about people giving of themselves, it wasn't about money, but it was about their presence, physical presence, allowing things to happen, which opened up other opportunities, which were not so obvious at the time, but you learn a lot about life sometimes by just breathing and by experiencing you. And, and and yeah, we all have setbacks, but sometimes those those setbacks are in the physical realm. You know, they're not in they're not in the energetic realm. Uh-huh. I mean, with me, you know, uh, just to speed things forward, I um, I sold my business in uh, on, on September tenth, two thousand and one. But the company I sold my business to ran something called Comdex, which was a large computer show, and they suffered so many economic consequences due to the effects of nine eleven. They ultimately failed for bankruptcy. But, ironically, two weeks before they failed for bankruptcy, I bought my business back from them. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and, ironically, he just won the contest for saying myronic the most out of all our I podcasts. I
2: know. I love I've it. I've been counting them, and he just won. I love it. No. Well, and that's just – so I ended up building it up and maybe selling it a second time. But um, not it. such a happy exit the second time. But in 2003 – is when uh, at post-sale, you know, building up the business again, is when I had that vision at night that I had to save the future. Because yeah, that's what
0: I was going to ask. I was like, when you had that premonition about- I had a
2: very strong premonition. Yeah, what
0: was, so what was- so this I,
2: I, Well, basically what happened was I saw the phone companies coming out of the dot-com crash, the telecom crash and the effects of 9-11 and realizing how disruptive- broadband could be to their future, how they would need to protect the future for themselves. Mm. So they would go out and do things in the broadband realm that would shut down innovation. And it was my job to come in and save the future. So the same law firm that I used to help protect the voice of IP industry when we were infants in 96 that helped create the Vine Coalition, I said, hey, is it possible to be proactive this time and go to the Federal Communications Commission and ask for regulatory you know, ruling on, on, on that, they're, that this should not be regulated. And they said, Yeah, sure, you can do whatever. So it took five weeks. We filed this petition. And uh, literally, I, I asked the attorneys on the day that they filed, um, So when does the fight begin? And they said, and This is when they waited to tell me, Jeff, look, if you hear Martian signals in your ears, you could file a petition at the FCC for them to block those signals. There's a very good chance they're not going to take action but be happy, be thrilled that you had the the fortitude to put your ideas to paper and we filed something that will be on record. This is something that you think we should do. Now, I had previously had filed things about E911 services because I saw what happened at the World Trade Center. I wanted to have location-based services for 911 so that if someone has an emergency in a building, they know what floor to be on. I'm very happy to say that concepts that I filed for back in the year 2001 have been acted upon. But wow. this particular thing, you know, they're saying, have fun, you know, no guarantee, but like, uh, be careful what you wish for. Cause 10 days later, the uh, federal communications commission, uh, took, took our docket and put it out for public comment. And if you have not been part of a, a federal communications commission pleading cycle, what happens for the next 30 days is crap on Jeff Pulvermonth, because uh, <laughs> around the world, individually and corporately, companies and people would say no we don't want this petition they never really said why maybe they didn't like the marriage of the petition they thought other legislation that was pending would cover it oh, but geez. basically at this point um nobody was really in favor of it the, the von coalition i'm very happy to say was in favor of it but they were a little biased and um and so the pleading cycle was and they put out they, in march it was a pleading cycle in april i was able to reply back and the craziest thing happened in May of 2003. So it's one thing for the phone companies and individuals to be against you. But in May of 2003, two organizations actually went up against me. It was the FBI and the Department of Justice. Wow. wow. As they say, you can mess around with everybody else, but you can't mess around with those guys. Wow. wow. Uh, back in that year, the MCI, MCI's assets were acquired by the government. And in a so-called um, non, uh, non-disclosed location, there was a meeting between ten people, including me, from the free, free World Dialogue team, meeting with members of the government. The thing was, is that you go the, the second floor of this building. There was a door that said "Computer Crimes Division," and all of us walk in, and I felt like I was walking onto the set of Law and Order. What was really super freaky? There were only three people from the government, but only two people were introduced themselves. So oh. was this person staring at us the entire time, and we're looking That's around. Weird. Where are the cameras? And and during the conversation. Um, my friend, Ed Guy, who was CTO, he was there explaining everything that they were asking because they start the conversation by saying, oh, we're not here to answer any questions you may, we may have about the petition, our thoughts are a public comment, but do you mind if we ask some additional questions? And so they asked some questions and I'm looking at my friend, Ed, and I think the 20 minutes that he was sitting there, he probably lost two or three pounds of water weight just from sweating. So I jump up, I say, guys, listen, um, if free will dial up will help you find the bad guys, it's yours. You want to host it, take it. If I could do anything, I can give it to you. Just, just take it. It's whatever we can do. We're totally happy to help you. And they're looking at each other like, what is he going on here? And so I can't say we hugged it out, but I think we made at least one new friend in Washington that day. And then the next day, we went to the West Wing of the White House. We had a meeting with the Telecoms of America, which was a pretty crazy meeting because uh, we were also in the, uh, the extended West Wing, which was also one of those, I think, MCI properties because where this guy was sitting, his office was all glass. And we were so burnt out as the team that um, I think my, our admin was the one who pitched the telecoms of America, our story, because we all knew it by heart, because we had done it so many times by then. And, and so, um, and his response was, look, I'm in favor of your petition. President Bush is in favor of your petition. It'll be good for broadband in America. We'll make it happen. And, and he had these glass walls, and there, the elevator who came in was like visible from his office. And... Um, and literally when, when, when we, walk, we, we leave his office after about an hour of talking and being social and, uh, and the door closed, as the door is closing, he opens up his doors and says, thank you for not asking for subsidies. I'm saying, crap, we could have gotten subsidies from the government for this. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and then you know, a whole bunch oh, of other lovely. things happen, both good and bad, but I'll get a, a, the regular monthly phone call. We're not dead yet. We're not dead yet. And on February 12th, two, uh, 2004, it was the anniversary of the release of iPhone. iPhone got released uh, February 12th, 1995.
0: Yeah, that's I was February like, wait, 212 was a big day for you.
2: It was a big day, yes. And uh, it got issued, the, the, the Pulver Order came out, and uh, wow. it changed the course of history for some organizations like Verizon. And uh, a lot of good things happened because of that, but it certainly encouraged the whole revolution of how you see today people using the internet in the times of pandemic, where around the world, globally, people take it for granted that we can communicate freely and openly with voice and video you're welcome yeah. wow. it's okay yeah yeah <laughs> really right I...
0: oh my god jeff we're gonna have to ask you to come back at some point to share okay. more because I, I, we've yeah, only I, I gone know, I, to 2004 I, I, I,
1: I... okay everybody we'll see you guys all next time on the that's my Renee podcast thank you for joining us on that's my Renee podcast We hope you enjoyed the Myronic story shared today and possibly got you to connect to the Myronies in your own life. As you listen to our podcast, you'll start catching signs that are so subtle, but could possibly have the biggest impact on your life because that's Myrony. Alicia and I wouldn't have created this podcast if it weren't for us paying attention to our own personal Myronies and started connecting those spiritual breadcrumbs. So pay attention to that inner voice and watch Myronies appear in your life just like the guest in our next episode. And please connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and our website at that'smyrony.com, where you can share your unbelievable myronies. We would love for you to share this episode with your friends and family, and also comment, like, and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. And remember, if something happens that makes you say, hmm, that's ironic. It's not ironic at all. It's myronic. Now that's myrony. See you all next time.